The wind above the Clax Towers was blowing from the hub, cool and purposeful, and Adorabel Deerheart fancied she could see the edge of the world from here. She cherished moments like this. They reminded her of when she was young, really young, when her mother would hang her cradle from the top of a tower while she was coding, leaving her daughter cheerfully making baby noises several hundred feet above the ground. In fact, her mother said her very first word was check sum, and now she could see clearly out of its mists the mountain Corrie Celeste glittering like a great green icicle. She sang as she tightened up the spinners on the upper gallery. She was out of the office, as far from it as was possible, and it felt good. After all, she could even see the office from up here. In fact, she could probably see everybody's office from here. But right now she sorted out the delicate little mechanisms and savoured a world where she could reach out and touch the sun, well, metaphorically at least. This reverie was broken by one of the tower's goblins. "'I am bringing twenty spinners and a flask of coffee very hygienic. I cleaned the mug myself with my own hand, me, of the twilight, the darkness,' he said proudly. Adorabel looked down at a face that would take a frantic battalion of mothers to love, but nevertheless she smiled and said, "'Thanks, mister. I must say, you've really got acclimatised for somebody who has spent most of their life in a cave. I can't believe you don't even worry about heights. That never ceases to amaze me. And thanks again. It really is good coffee, and still warm, too.' Of the twilight the darkness shrugged as only a goblin could shrug. The effect was rather like a parcel of snakes dancing. "'Mrs. Boss, goblin's no stranger to acclimatise. Don't acclimatise, don't live. And anyway, things going well down there, no problems. Goblin's got respect. And how is Mr. Slightly Damp?' "'Moist is fine, my friend. And surely you know my husband doesn't like the name you goblins have given him. He thinks you're doing it on purpose.' "'You want that we stop doing it?' "'Oh, no. It teaches him a lesson in humility. I think he needs to go to university on that score.' The goblin grinned in the way of a conspirator, and he could see Adorabel trying not to laugh, while overhead the clacks continued sending its messages to the world. Adorabel could almost read the messages simply by watching the towers, but you had to be very, very fast, and the goblins were even faster than that and who ever would have thought their eyesight was so discerning? Using the new augmented colour shutter boxes after dark, most human clax spotters could separate about four or five or maybe even six colours on a very good clear night. But who could have imagined that goblins, fresh out of their caves, would be uncannily able even to identify puce as opposed to pink, while most humans didn't have a clue what a damn puce was if they saw it? Adorabel glanced at Of the Twilight the Darkness, and once again acknowledged to herself that goblins were the reason why Clack's traffic was so much faster, more accurate, and streamlined than ever before. And yet how could she reward them for the increased efficiency? Sometimes the goblins never even bothered to take their pay. They liked rats, of which there was never a shortage, but because she was indeed the boss— if you could give that name to somebody who had to deal every day with forms to sign, go to far too many meetings about meetings, and handle the most petty of correspondence. 
she felt it incumbent on her to persuade the little nerds that there were indeed many other things you could be doing apart from coding and deciphering clax messages. She almost shivered. They actively, obsessively liked to work all day and all night if possible. She knew if the name on the door said boss, then in theory she had to think about their welfare, but they weren't interested in their own welfare. What they wanted to do was code and decipher, pausing only when the lady troll with the rat trolley came round. Honestly, they liked their work and not just liked it, but lived it. How many bosses had had to go all around the workplace telling people they really had to stop working now and go home? But then they didn't go home. They wanted to stay up in their clax towers and in the small hours of the night chat by clax to goblins elsewhere. They would rather chatter than eat, it seemed, and even slept on the tower, dragging in little straw beds for when they were forced by nature to take a nap. Adorabelle had insisted to the trustees that there should be a foundation set up against the day when goblins and their children might want to move further into society. So a scant while after the remarkable musical talents of Tears of the Mushroom had been so spectacularly unveiled to Ankh-Morpork High Society, the goblins had become people. Strange people, yes, but people nevertheless. Of course, there was the smell, but you couldn't have everything. Novelty went round Ankh-Morpork just like an embarrassing disease, thought Sir Harry King the following afternoon as he looked down onto the compound where people were peering through the gates and fencing in a great susuration of speculation. Harry knew his fellow citizens from the bottom up, as it were, willing slaves to novelty and the exotic, rubberneckers all of them. The whole crowd were turning their heads as one to keep track of Iron Girder, like a flock of starlings, and all the time Iron Girder was chuffing away with Dick waving from the footplate, the air still full of the smuts and smells. And yet, he thought, it's all approval. No one's disagreeing, no one's frightened. A beast from nowhere, a fiery dragon, all smoke and cinders, has appeared among them, and they hold up their children to look at it, waving as it goes past. What strange magic, he corrected himself, what strange mechanics could have achieved this? There was the beast, and they were loving it. I'll have to get familiar with those words, Harry thought, as he left his office. Footplate, boiler, reciprocal, molybdenum disulfide. This black crystalline compound was widely used by troll women as an anti-aging cream. Dick Simnel had been thorough in his research, and it was, apparently, a very efficient lubricant. And all the tiresome but fascinating language of steam. Having noticed that Harry was watching them, Dick Simnel allowed Iron Gerda to slow down gently until, with an almost imperceptible bump, she came to a halt. Dick jumped off the footplate and strolled towards him, and Harry saw a triumphant look in his eye. Harry said, well done, lad, but be careful. Be very, very careful. Be careful of everything right now. I've been watching the faces of them people with their noses pressed up against my fence, their little faces all corrugated, as it were. They're fascinated, and fascinated people spend money. The most important thing in business is to work out who gets that cash, 
and it's like this, my boy. It's a jungle out there, and I'm more than a multi-millionaire, much more. I know that while happy handshakes are very pleasing and friendly, when it comes to business, you can't do without bloody lawyers, because in this jungle I'm a gorilla. It's best you tell me the name of yours, and I'll get my lawyer to get in touch so they can talk all lawyer to lawyer while totting up their dollars. I don't want no one to say that Harry King fleeced the lad who tamed the steam. For what it's worth, I'll fund you up to a certain point, no doubt about that, because I think this engine of yours has real possibilities, huge possibilities. So now you've got my interest, and by the time the papers find out about this, you'll have everyone's interest. Dick shrugged and said, Well, Sir Harry, it's great that you're giving me a chance, so anything you suggest will be okay by me. Harry almost screamed, No, 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 I like you. I like you a lot, but business is... Well, business is business. Harry's face was now puce with anger. You don't go and tell anyone that you'll take whatever they want to give you. You bargain, lad. Don't get starry-eyed, you bargain, you bargain hard. There was a silence, and then the lad said, Mr King, before I decided to come to Ank Morpork, I talked about things with me mother, a very shrewd lady. She had to be, what with me dad being somewhere out there in the ether, if you catch me drift. And she said, if someone wants to do business in the big city, Dick, make out your simple and see how they treat you. If they treat you properly, simple as you are, then it's likely you can trust them. And then you can show them how smart you really are. And well, sir, it seems to me you're as straight as lunchtime. I'll go and find a lawyer right now. He hesitated. Eh, where can I find a lawyer I can trust? I might not be as clever as I think I am. Sir Harry laughed heartily. It's a tough call, lad, and a question I've lately needed to ask myself as it happens. My friend Mustram Ridcully over at the university told me about one only yesterday. A lawyer so straight he could be used as a crowbar. Why not let your lads go on showing iron girded to the crowd and come with me in my carriage? Although it's not a patch on the one you brought here, eh? Eh? Come on, lad, let's go, shall we? At his office in the Lawyer's Guild building, Harry King and Dick Simnel met Mr Thunderbolt, surprisingly large and, surprisingly, a troll. A troll with a voice like gently flowing lava. "'You will wish to know my credentials, gentlemen. I am a member of the Ankh-Morpork Guild of Lawyers and served my articles here under Mr Slant,' said Mr Thunderbolt. "'As well as my Ankh-Morpork practice,' I am the only troll to have, moreover, accreditation as a lawyer in the realm of the low king. Apropos of nothing, Sir Harry, I am also the nephew of Diamond King of Trolls, although, of course, I must add that the nature of troll families is such that the mere word nephew does not do the situation justice. The voice was the voice of a professor, but one who had chosen to speak in an echoing cave. The features were more or less like those of all trolls, unless you looked for the giveaway signs and recognised the careful masonry work, the richness of the plant life in the visible cavities, and, not least, that elusive shine, and possibly shimmer, which caught the light so delicately, not boldly in your face, but irresistibly there. 
And yes, I am diamond through and through, and therefore I cannot tell lies for fear of shattering. Furthermore, I have no intention of trying to do so. It appears to me, gentlemen, from what you tell me, that the two of you are in accord, neither wishing to play unfairly, and both of you wishing to act decently with one another. And so, on this occasion, much as my guild colleagues might disapprove, I suggest I act as mediator and lawyer for both of you. Troll justice is remarkably straightforward. I only wish that this could be the case everywhere else. However, should you fall out, then I would not undertake work from either of you subsequently. Thunderbolt smiled, and little sparkles flashed around the room like a firework display. I will put together a short document which might, in other places, be called an agreement to agree, and I am the judge not on the side of you individually, but on the side of you both. I am diamond, and I cannot allow injustice to happen. I suggest, gentlemen, that you continue with your project, which seems to me remarkable, and leave the paperwork to me. I look forward to seeing you at the compound tomorrow. Harry and Dick were silent in the coach until Dick said, Weren't he nice? For a lawyer. By the time they got back to the compound, the goblin Billy Slick, who had worked for Harry for many years, was in a tizzy. Although he didn't know that, not knowing the word existed, and he was at the gate waiting for them when the carriage drew up. Frantically, he said, "'I closed the gate, Sir Harry, but it looks like they'll climb over anything to see this, this, this thing. I keep telling them we ain't running no fun house here.' The light was fading, and yet still the eyes of the onlookers were following Iron Gerda as she travelled around the track while Simnel's team put her through her paces, throwing off sparks in the twilight like signals to the universe that steam was here to stay.' and when most of the sightseers had reluctantly left to go home for their supper, some of Harry's goblins slunk into the compound to see the marvel of the age. They did, indeed, slink, Harry thought, not exactly like a burglar, but simply because the average goblin carcass was born slinking. Except that right now they were dancing around Iron Girder, and the lads had their work cut out to keep skinny little goblin fingers out of dangerous places. Iron Gerda sat, and occasionally gave out a puff of steam or smoke, while all the time, in the twilight, Harry heard tiny staccato voices interrogating the engineers. "'What does this one do, mister?' "'What happens if I push this, mister? I see, mister, that this one connects to the blast-pipey armature.' Harry and Dick joined Dave and Wally as they stood by Iron Gerda, answering the barrage of questions. To Harry's surprise, instead of the complaints he was expecting to be issuing from the lad's mouths, he saw they were smiling happily. "'They seem to get it, sir. Oh, aye,' said Wally. "'They're into everything. We're having to keep an eye on them, but they seem to understand without being told. Can you believe that?' And Harry marvelled. He quite liked the little buggers, as any employer would quite like somebody who worked hard, 
But how does a goblin get the understanding of steam engines? It must be something in their nature. Their scruffy little faces were wreathed in smiles at the sight of something metallic and complicated. It was a sign of the times, he thought, and it looks like time for the goblins. Simnel was silent for a moment, as if waking up the internal steam for the next thought, then said, in a careful kind of voice, "'You really would think they were born to it?' "'I can't say I'm surprised, Dick,' said Harry. "'The Clax people say the same thing. "'It's uncanny, but it seems that they automatically understand mechanisms, "'so be careful, as they like to take things apart on the fly "'just to see what they do. "'But once they understand how whatever it is works, "'they seem to put it all back together again. "'There's no malice. "'They just like to tinker with the best. "'And you know what? "'Sometimes they improve things.' How can you explain that? But if I was you, I'd have one of you three sleeping under iron girder of a night just so they don't get creative. The following day, Moist von Lipvig was gently awakened by Crossley, who as yet had failed to grasp his master's attitude to sleep, a fact which was reinforced by Moist turning over in bed and saying, The sequence was repeated three minutes later with the same response this time with the emphasis on the last syllable uttered three times with increasing volume. Subsequently, in fact, and to be precise, fifteen minutes later, Moist von Lipvig was pulled out of the arms of Morpheus by the none-too-gentle prodding of a blade belonging to one of the Ankh-Morpork palace guards, a species he didn't like very much in any case because they were stolid and dumb. Admittedly, so were the majority of the city watch, in Moist's opinion, but at least they were, by and large, creatively, and at least humorously dumb, which made them a lot more interesting. After all, you could talk to them and therefore confuse them, whereas with the palace guards, well, all they knew was how to prod, and they were quite good at it. It was wise not to put them to any trouble, and so Moist, fully conversant with how this sort of thing worked, dressed grumpily and followed them to the palace, and undoubtedly an audience with Lord Vetinari. The patrician was, unusually, not at his desk, but paying attention to something on the large polished table that filled one half of the oblong office. He was, in fact, playing. It seemed ridiculous, but there was no denying it. He was watching a children's toy quite intently, a little cart or trolley of some sort, on a little metal rail, which allowed it to scuttle continuously in a circle for no readily apparent reason. He straightened up after Moist coughed loudly and said, "'Ah, Mr. Lipvig, it's so kind of you to come. Eventually. Tell me, what do you make of this?' Somewhat perplexed, Moist said, "'It looks like a children's plaything, sir. In fact,' It is a very well-crafted model of something much bigger and far more dangerous. Lord Vetinari raised his voice and said, as if talking not only to Moist, but to the world in general, Some might say that it would have been easy for me to prevent this happening. A stiletto sliding quietly here, a potion dropped into a wine-glass there, many problems solved at one stroke. Diplomacy, as it were, on the sharp end. Regrettably unfortunate, of course, but not subject to argument. People might say that I wasn't paying attention, 
and through neglect of my duties allowed the poison to seep into the imagination of the world and change it irrevocably. Perhaps I could have taken some action when I first saw Leonard of Querm doodle something very much like this little toy in the margins of his drawing of the Countess Quattro Fromaggio at her toilet. But of course I would rather shatter the most priceless antique vase than see any harm come to one hair on that most useful and venerable head. I thought it would go the way of his flying machines, nothing more than a toy. And now it has come to this. One simply cannot trust the artificers. They design some terrible things for the sheer love of doing so, without wisdom, foresight, or responsibility. And frankly, I would like to see them chained up where they can do no harm. And here Lord Vetinari paused and added, And I could have made that happen in an instant, were it not for the fact, Mr. Lipvig, that the wretches are so damn useful. He sighed, causing Moist to worry. Moist had never seen his lordship so discomfited, staring intently at the little truck as it went round and round on its little rails and filled the room with a smell of methylated spirits. There was something hypnotic about it, for Lord Vetinari at least. A silent hand dropped lightly and eerily onto Moist's shoulder. He turned around quickly, and behind him was Drumnot, smiling gently. "'I suggest you pretend you didn't hear anything, Mr. Lipvig,' he whispered. "'It's the best way, especially when he has one of his uh, sombre moments.' Still whispering, Drumnot continued, "'A lot of this is to do with the crossword, of course. You know how he is about that.' I intend personally to write to the editor. His lordship considers elegant completion to be a test of his integrity. A crossword is meant to be an engaging and educational puzzle. And then, his normally pink face reddening, Drumnot added, I'm sure it's not intended to be a form of torture. And I'm certain that there is no such word as lanyap. However, his lordship has terrific powers of recovery, and if you care to wait while I make you some coffee, I'd wager he'll be his old self again before you can say death warrant. In fact, Lord Vetinari stared at the wall for only eight minutes more before he appeared to shake himself down. He beamed at Drumnot, and less warmly acknowledged the presence of Moist, who had been surreptitiously looking at the unfinished crossword lying prominently across the table. Moist said, brightly, but with the best of intentions, "'My lord, I'm sure you know that Lanyap is spelt differently than it sounds. Just a thought, of course, only trying to be helpful, sir.' "'Yes, I know,' said Lord Vetinari in dark tones. "'Can I be of any other assistance, my lord?' said Moist, reckoning that he hadn't been prodded out of his bed for an undone crossword or to admire a child's toy.' Lord Vetinari looked down his nose at Moist momentarily and said icily, "'Since you have finally decided to join us at this difficult time, Mr. Lipvig, I will tell you that there was once a man called Ned Simnel, who made a mechanical device propelled in some arcane way for taking in the harvest. The present difficulties might have begun there, but fortuitously his device didn't work.' tending apparently to explode and burst into flames, and so the balance of the world was maintained. 
But, of course, the men who are drawn to tinkering continue to tinker in their little sheds. And not only that, they find ladies, good, sensible ladies, who inexplicably agree to marry them, thus breeding a race of little tinkerers. One of them, a scion of the aforesaid Simnel, has apparently been scratching about in his father's shed, and most certainly wondered if he, with his infinite curiosity, could achieve what his father, alas, had not. And now this young man has created a machine which devours wood and coal and spews out flames, polluting the sky, undoubtedly scaring every living creature for miles around, and making the gods' own noise, or so I am told. Finally, young Mr. Simnel has found his way to our good friend Sir Harry King, and apparently the two of them are now dreaming up an enterprise which I believe is called the Railway. Betanari paused only briefly before continuing. Mr. Lipvig, I feel the pressure of the future, and in this turning world must either kill it or become its master. I have a nose for these things, just as I had for you, Mr. Lipvig. And so I intend to be like the people of 4X, and surf the future. Giving it a little tweak here and there has always worked for me, and my instincts are telling me that this wretched railway, which appears to be a problem, might just prove to be a remarkable solution. Moist looked at the patrician's grey expression. He had articulated the term railway in something like the voice of an elderly duchess finding something unmentionable in her soup. It had total disdain floating in the air around it. But if you watched the weather of Lord Vetinari, and Moist was an expert in the patrician's meteorology, you would notice that sometimes a metaphysical cloudburst might very shortly turn into a lovely day in the park. He could almost smell his lordship coming to terms with the reality in front of him. Tiny movements of the face, changes of posture, and the whole litany of Havelock veterinary thinking suddenly delivered one of those smiles which Moist knew suggested that the game was afoot, and the mind of Lord Vetinari was running and well-oiled. Vetinari said, getting more cheerful at every word, "'My coach is waiting downstairs, Mr. Lipvig. Come!' Moist knew that any kind of argument was useless, and he also knew that Lord Vetinari most definitely knew that too. But there was such a thing as pride, and so he said, "'My lord, I must protest. I have a lot of work to be done. Surely you are aware.' Lord Vetinari, his robe fluttering behind him like a banner, was already halfway to the door. He was a long-boned man, and Moist had to run to keep up, occasionally hopping down the stairs two at a time with Drumnot in pursuit. Ahead of him, his lordship said over his shoulder, Mr. Lipvig, you don't, in fact, have a great deal of work to do. In fact, as Postmaster General, Deputy Chairman of the Royal Banker Bank, Moorpork, the actual chairman being, in point of fact, Mr. Fusspot, Chair Dog, and, of course, Master of the Royal Mint, you employ on our behalf a great many extremely clever people who work very hard, that is true. Your strange camaraderie, 
your skill at getting people to like you against all the evidence and amazingly continue to like you makes you a very good boss, it must be said, with staff who are very loyal to you. But ultimately all you really need to do in the way of desk work is a little light auditing every so often. Lord Vetinari stepped up his pace and continued, And what is it that we can take away from all this I fail to hear you ask? Well, I shall tell you. What the wise man will take away is a certainty that any favour is worth doing for a good boss. And I, Mr. Lipvick, am a most exemplary and forbearing employer. This is apparent from the circumstance that your head is still clearly resting on your shoulders, despite the fact that it might possibly be in, oh, so many other places, as it were.'